As you can see from our little easel, uh, we're studying Matthew's Gospel, and um, we've entitled our series, Jesus is King. Um, so that, that's the title of our series. We're going through it over a long period of time, and we're seeing time and time again, Jesus is King. He's authoritative. He's powerful. He's in control. And we come now to a section in Matthew's chapter 8 through 9, where um, basically Matthew puts together three sets of three, three sets of three miracle stories, and each miracle, set of three miracle stories has two lessons on discipleship following it. And so last week we saw the first set of three, uh, and we saw that Jesus is authoritative. He can say, be healed, be cleansed, and it happens instantaneously and comprehensively. We saw that in response to that, we're called to follow him no matter what. Unconditional allegiance, that's, that's, what, in, that's what is meant to be engendered from his authoritative word. This week, uh, the title of the message is Trusting Jesus, and we're going to be going into the next set of three, Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 um, through to 9, 17. Normally, don't preach so long a text, um, but because they're actually all put together for one purpose, it's easier to preach them all in one go, even though it's quite a lot to get through, um, but it'll be, it'll be good. So I'm not going to read the text before we go today. I'll try something different. We'll read it as we go. Um, and I'm going to pray for us. So would you join me in prayer? Our God and Father, we ask that you may bless the preaching of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. The reality about us as humans is that we most relate to and correspond to stories over data. Uh, as, as human beings, we love stories. We've been programmed by God to relate to stories more than we are to data. Take Anzac Day, for instance. If you just look at the data of Anzac Day, um, the fact that all these thousands of young men were shipped to Turkey, a lot of them died, and then we retreated um, some you know, period of time later after making no headway at all. That's the data. But when we tell it as a story... And we hear of the courage, the, the naivety of these young men and women, the sacrifice, the, the hurdles, the, the trench warfare, the adversity against all odds, the ingenuity to find out ways to come home, the bravery, the mateship. These stories become legend. These legends become part of the heart and soul and character of our nation. And the way the Bible is actually written is it's written in story form. Because story cuts through and actually shows us before it tells us. The stories show us the reality. It shows us the truth before it tells us um, what is the truth and what we're meant to do. And that's exactly what Matthew is doing in this section. He's showing us before he tells. He's showing us these realities about who Jesus is and their stories that teach. There's stories that by viewing and entering in, we actually see something about Jesus that we wouldn't have seen if he just said, Jesus is king. Believe him. That's the book of Matthew. He could have just done that, like that would be fine and we should obey. But instead, he gives us stories. And the stories of the Bible aren't like modern art, you know, or postmodern art, where you kind of, the, the creator creates something that they like, but the meaning is open to interpretation, and there's multiple different views. You can have a feminist reading, or a Marxist reading, or a capitalist reading. You can kind of view the art how you want. The way Matthew is written is he's an author, inspired by the Holy Spirit, with an intent. 
He's trying to get things done in his story. He knows as an author what he wants to show. It's very clear. And so as we listen to these stories, as we interact with them, let's let the story hit us and affect us and move us. And let's let the author teach us what we ought to do in response. So today there are three stories, two lessons on discipleship and one right response. And the right response we're going to see is that we are to humble ourselves and trust Jesus, the Almighty King. But to get there, let's go through our three points. I'll read them out as we go. Point number one, what sort of man is this? What sort of man is this? We're going to have three questions today to kind of take us through. And our first question is derived from our text. What sort of man is this? Well, let's join in, grab your Bibles, and let's read Matthew 8, verse 23 and following. The first of our three stories. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. So if you remember from last week, Jesus has healed the leper, healed the paralyzed centurion servant, healed Jesus' mother-in-law. Then these two disciples have come up to him and they've said, hey, I'm going to follow you. And Jesus says, well, do you really want to? Foxes have holes, you know, birds, have, birds of the air have nests, son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Mm. Then the next guy goes, well, I'll follow you after I bury my father. And Jesus says, well, let the dead bury their own dead. Just make me your primary allegiance. And then they get into a boat, and as we read here, the disciples followed him. Continuing on, verse 24. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. <laughs> and they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. Save us, Lord, we are perishing. You know, as we come to this scene, it's a, it's a scene we've probably read many times in the Bible before, but you've got to try and picture yourself on a Galilean lake with an incredible storm arising. You're in like, you know, a first century boat, okay? I can't imagine them being all too sturdy or stable. You know, it's not like the Princess Ruby cruise ship, which was far more dangerous in another way. But, it, you know, it's a little wooden boat and there's this massive storm coming up. And, you know, the wind and the waves are piling on. The disciples are trained fishermen. Uh, they know what it's like to be in a storm. But this one is apparently so fearful that they're afraid for their very lives. And what do they do? Well, they go to Jesus because they're like, I mean, he just healed all these people with a word. And there he is. Jesus is camped out at the back asleep, uh, totally just relaxed and trusting in the Lord and they ask, and they come with this question, and they say, or not a question, rather, a statement, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And that's Bible speak for save us, Lord, we're dying. Like, we're about to die, we're drowning, what are you going to do? I don't know if you've ever been in a frightening natural disaster or situation like that, but in those times when there is no, like, you can't control it, our natural instinct is to do what the disciples did, which is actually a good instinct. God, help us. 
Some months ago, in fact, um, there was a bushfire just in my street, like right across where I live, and there's fire blazing, there's smoke everywhere, and the fireys are trying to put it out. But even though we had these guys helping us, the only thing we could do is basically just sit there and pray and ask for help. So they wake Jesus up and look at verse 26. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose, he's like getting up from his sleep, rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this? that even winds and sea obey him. You know, there's lots that we could take out of this passage, but there's one main thing that Matthew wants us to see. Matthew wants us to see that Jesus has authority. And his, his authority extends not just over healing people, but he has authority over the very natural realm. He has authority over the winds and the waves, the sea and the squalls obey his very voice. And the disciples are even more afraid, um, Mark's gospel tells us, um, after Jesus calms the sea. Because suddenly they realize they're in a boat with a man who controls the weather. And whatever conception they had of Jesus up until this point is being exploded again. I don't know who they thought he was up until now, but now they're, in, they're like, what sort of man is this? Not just who is he, okay, he's Jesus of Nazareth. He said he's, like, you know, this teacher, this... But what sort of person is he? I mean, what sort of human being controls the natural elements? I don't know if you've ever been in a storm and you've tried to bust out a bit of peace be still. <laughs> I have. I've never had any effect. But they're afraid because it's starting to dawn on them that this man is more than a man. He's more than just a mere teacher. There's something divinely authoritative about him. Notice too, though, that Jesus rebukes the disciples. Yeah, it seems a little bit harsh. Again, you know, one of the things, as you study Jesus, you'll see he doesn't always fit into our boxes. I mean, they're about to die. He's asleep. It's quite reasonable to wake him up and be like, what are you doing? Come on, help us. He rebukes them and says, why are you of such little faith? But notice this in the rebuke. He didn't say you have no faith, just little faith. And the reality is that for the disciples in this moment, Though they are lacking in this resting, assured confidence in who Jesus is, they still have enough faith to go to him for help. And one of the, the things that we're going to see all through Mark's gospel is it's not the greatness of your faith, but who you put your faith in that will save you. If you have great faith jumping out of an airplane that an umbrella, um, like in the cartoons, will make you float safely down to earth, um, the umbrella won't hold you up. But if you have a little faith, in a parachute, and you pull that cord, trusting that it will save you on the way down, you will be saved 99 times out of 100. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the main thing that Matthew is trying to help us to see is the disciples are in this boat. They're trying to figure out who is this man. They have enough faith to kind of go to him and trust him, but they don't really know what he's going to do 
And then he defies all expectation and the winds and the sea obey him. In fact, if you read through the Old Testament, I won't quote it now, there's actually quite a few references to the Lord Yahweh, God of heavens and earth, being the only one who can calm storms and calm the whirlwind and and make natural events take place. And so I wonder if the disciples in the back of their head are starting to think, maybe, 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 we don't know. Matthew quickly moves us on to the next scene. Um, So we've seen he has authority over the natural world. Now we're going to see his authority over the supernatural world. Look at verse 28. When he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. You know, this is a, a frightful scene. They, they get off the, the scary boat. Finally, they're probably kissing the land. They thank you, Lord, we're on the land again. They come up, and then suddenly these crazy demon dudes come out of the tombs, you know, wild, uh, untamable. Uh, we learn in Mark's gospel that they were strong enough to break iron chains, that they couldn't be bound, that they were terrorizing everyone in the area. And they run straight up to Jesus and the disciples. So they've gone, they've gone from one bad situation to the next. And they're thinking, do we really want to follow this guy? Um, look at what happens. Um, and perhaps you too have experienced some um, encounters with the spiritual world. Maybe you've um, been in situations where you thought, oh, it'd be fun to try out a seance or, you know, talk to a dead relative or something like that, and, and it's gone horribly wrong. You've experienced the, that there is more than just, you know, physical reality. We're more than just atoms and cells, that there is a spiritual world and that there's dark and there's light. Uh, and the disciples are experiencing this firsthand now because these demon-possessed men, possessed by these unclean spirits, are running up to them. But look at what happens. Look at verse 29. And behold, this is Matthew loves to say this, it draws our attention. Look, they cried out, that is the demon-possessed men, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Another shocking development in this story of who is this man? What sort of man is this? He's the sort of man that demon possessed people fall on their knees before and then they cry out that he's the son of God not just a powerful ruler not just you know an exorcist or something like that but the son of God and then look at the kind of way that the demons view Jesus are you here to torment us before the time so these demon possessed men possessed by these demons are bowing before Jesus calling him son of God and recognizing that they've already been defeated that they know that there's going to be one day when Jesus, the judge, will judge them and and bind them and send them into everlasting torment. And they're like, are you here to make our time worse before that time? So they're aware of this crazy reality that's going on. They know who this man is and they have to bow before him. They can't not. They don't love him. They don't worship him. They're, They're evil and wicked. They hate that he's the son of God, but they have to bow down before him. And they say, have you come here to torment us before the time? What happens? Well, verse 30, we know we're in Gentile territory because there's a herd of many pigs. Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him saying, 
Notice that. They beg him. They have no authority. They don't have this power of themselves. They have to beg. If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he, that is Jesus, said to them one word, go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen, presumably of the pigs, pig herders, I don't know, what do you call them? Anyway, um, pig herdsmen, um, going into the sea, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him, notice that word again, to leave their region. It's a strange scene, isn't it? You know, you've, these demon-possessed men, they cry out, then they, they ask for mercy. This mercy is to be cast into these bunch of pigs. And then Matthew, Mark's gospel tells us there's 2,000 pigs. So imagine this scene, like 2,000 pigs just, just sprinting into the water, the, the water that presumably they just got out of, um, where the, the storm was just quelled, and they all just drown and die. It's a, it's a horrible scene. Uh, the herdsmen leg it back into town. They're like, everyone, you've got to come out. There's this person. I mean, I don't know what he is, but he's here, and he healed those demon-possessed men. Notice that they paid particular attention in, in Matthew's account to the effect that Jesus had more on the demon-possessed men than on the pigs. They're like, they're healed. But then look at what the townspeople do. When they see Jesus, they beg him to leave their region. When they respond to Jesus, when they see Jesus for who he is, this powerful, authoritative, in-control figure, they beg him to leave. They beg him to leave. Why is that? Why do they want Jesus to go? I mean, he just healed these, he just freed these men, presumably some of their family members, the people that they know. Wouldn't they want Jesus to hang around? Well, the reality is, and Don Carson says, that the loss of the herd became a way of exposing the real values of this people in the vicinity. They preferred pigs to persons and swine to the Saviour. You see that Jesus, when he turns up, he does mess things up. He messes up our lives and our plans and, and he redirects things. He doesn't make everything fit into these neat, like, before I was a Christian, everything was like really bad and now everything's perfect and I'm just on this golden pathway to heaven. When Jesus turns up, things get messy, things get hard and they don't like that. They don't want Jesus in their region. They'd rather have their safety, their security, their economy in order than have this powerful, authoritative man who can liberate people um, from darkness. And so they beg him to leave. Now, you might be wondering if you're conscious about animals and you're like, but why the pigs? You know, why did 2,000 pigs have to die? And I understand that's a fair objection and it's a fair question. The passage doesn't tell us. Um, and one commentator makes this sort of joke about the people that worry too much about the pigs. And he says this, Michael Green, um, much ink and compassion have been spilled upon the pigs by scholars who no doubt enjoy their bacon for breakfast and their pork for dinner. 
So if you're really worried about the pigs in this story, let's see how much you worry about it when you're having bacon and egg breakfast. Um, that's, the, that's his point there. But the main point is not the pigs. The main points are first that Jesus exercises God's almighty power over the demons. And secondly, that human beings are of much more value than a herd of pigs. So we're asking this question, what sort of man is this? Well, he has authority over the natural world. What sort of man is this? He has authority over the supernatural world. Let's go to the final set of miracles. Um, scene three, story three, Matthew chapter nine, verse one. And so Jesus, submitting to their begging, gets back into the boat. Presumably, Jesus had come across to the Gadarene, uh, Gadara area to do ministry and help. They beg him to leave, and so he does. He gets back into the same boat, crosses the same <laughs> sea where the storm was, and came to his own city, which is Capernaum. And behold, again, see that word, Matthew's saying, look, I'm telling you another story. Some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Again, it's a strange scene. I mean, we, we know Jesus can heal paralyzed people uh, because we heard about it in last story. The, the centurion servant was paralyzed. From a distance, Jesus said, you're healed, and the, the servant was healed. So these Presumably, these people are like, whoa, he's a paralyzed healer. We have a paralyzed friend. Let's bring our friend to Jesus. Uh, and they do. They bring him to Jesus. And there he is, this, you know, presumably this man in his 40s or so that just you know, he can't walk. Therefore, he has no ability to make money in this economy. There's no Centrelink. There's no you know, um, disability insurance scheme. There's nothing like that. And his one hope is for this traveling preacher to heal him. And Jesus looks at him and says, my son, your sins are forgiven. If Jesus had stopped there and not gone on to heal him, as we'll see, how do you think he would have felt? How do you think you would feel about Jesus in this moment? He could have healed him. But the reality with Jesus is that Jesus sees the real need. He sees the most urgent cause. It's like when you go, if you went to a doctor complaining of a severe headache, horrible headache, pain that you just can't imagine, and the doctor's like, oh, I'm, I'm concerned about this, and he runs some tests, and he realizes that you have it like a brain cancer, you have a tumor in your brain, that's what's causing these headaches. Horrible situation. But what kind of doctor would he be if he prescribed you a heavy dose of Panadine 4 to deal with the symptoms of the headache and sent you on your way? No, a, a doctor must, out of duty and love and care for the patient, deal with the real problem. And the deeper problem is that of the cancer. And so Jesus sees our real need. He sees the real need of this paralyzed man. It's not that his legs would work, but that his soul would be unburdened from all of his sins. 
The real need of this paralyzed man is that he is in enmity with a holy God. The real need of this paralyzed man is that he should be wiped clean and his record be set free. And so Jesus beautifully delivers the greatest cure you could ever hear. Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. So Jesus sees the real need. But then there's some characters in the crowd who don't like that. Verse 3. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming which means to speak lies about God, uh, to, to lie about who God is. And they're thinking he's blaspheming because Jesus is forgiving sins. Only God can forgive sins. So Jesus is equating himself with God. You can't speak on behalf of God. What are you doing? But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, verse 4, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? Notice, and if you're not yet a believer in Jesus, your wrong thoughts about him are not neutral. They're evil. For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. In Jewish culture at that time, they had a firm belief of the causation of sickness was sin. So the paralyzed man must have caused some horrible sin or perhaps his parents or a forefather to cause him to be a paralyzed person. And so to be healed of your sickness, you had to be healed of your sin first. You had to be forgiven, and then God would deal with your sin, if you, uh, your sickness. If you didn't get rid of your sin, then he wouldn't get rid of your sickness. You see that in Job's counselors, if you read the book of Job. So for Jesus to do both was even more powerful proof of who he was. He says your sins are forgiven, and then demonstrates to their culture in their time that his sins were really forgiven by healing the man and sending him on his way. And so establishes his authority. He's not blaspheming. He can forgive sin, and he can heal. And look again at the response, verse 8. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid. And they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Lots in all of those scenes. But these three stories are all making us ask the one question. What sort of man is this? Not just who is he, but what is he? He has authority over the natural realm, over nature itself, the wind and the waves, lame legs and leprosy. Only God can do that. He has authority over the supernatural realm, over the devil and demons. Only God can do that. He has authority over sin itself. He is the judge. And he alone can render someone guilty or not guilty based on his 
very word. Only God can do that. And so the resounding answer that Matthew wants us to see from these stories is that Jesus is the divinely authoritative son of God. The devils didn't lie. These stories put together this picture, adding from last week, of Jesus' kingly authority and who he really is. But did you notice who Jesus called himself? This, in this story, in the story last week, and in many times throughout Matthew's gospel, he calls himself the Son of Man. It's a title never used as a formal address. Like, you know, when you fill in a form, it says like, Mr., Mrs., Sir, Madam, Doctor. Never seen a form which says Son of Man. Uh, but Jesus, ticks, he kind of goes, Other, Son of Man. He writes that on the form, and he gives himself this new title. Never been used as a title before. Um, and it's this picking up on this Old Testament concept. Um, it's all the, way, um, all the way back in Daniel, and it's picked up in other places in the Psalms. And when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, he's highlighting to us, and Matthew's trying to highlight to us, who Jesus conceives himself to be. I want to read to us Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. And this answers the question, what sort of man is this? Well, he is the Son of Man. Read. I saw in the night visions, and there behold... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. So he's coming before God. This is a heavenly scene, a vision. The son of man comes and to him was given dominion. That's rulership and glory and a kingdom. What did Jesus say he'd come to do? The kingdom of heaven is at hand that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is who this man is, the very son of God, the son of man, the divinely authoritative one, the one who owns the kingdom, the one who every knee will bow to, the one who every tongue should confess. That's who this man is. And so these three stories all paint this one picture, that Jesus is the divinely authoritative Son of God. In these stories, there's all these different responses, fear, awe, wonder, trembling, anger, disgust, and glory. And as art shows before it tells, we've seen this vividly described by Matthew. The meaning is not up for grabs, it's clear. But the question now for us is, how ought we to respond? I'm sure for most of us in the room, this is not new news. You're like, I've heard these stories. I know Jesus is the Son of God. How are we meant to respond? And that's question number two. How should we respond? Matthew goes on to give us two more stories. Two more stories designed to teach what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, to educate us in a proper response. And in both of these stories, the message is clear. We must humble ourselves 
and trust this Son of Man. We must humble ourselves and trust Jesus alone to be one of his disciples. And here, the author enters the story. For the next story we're going to read is about Matthew himself, the man writing this account. Let's read verses 9 through 13. How should we respond? Verse 9. As Jesus passed from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And don't have ATO in your minds. Think more like um, pay, you know, those payday lenders where it's like, do you need cash quick? Well, I'll give you cash, but it's a 20% interest rate. You'll never pay it back and you'll be crippled with debt the rest of your life. That's kind of how the tax collectors work. They were like loan sharks. They taxed their own people, took extra than they should to make themselves rich and left people in impoverished cycles of poverty. And Jesus goes up to one of them and says, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table, that's Bible for partied, in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So Matthew throws a party and all the worst people in town come to it. And there's Jesus, the son of God, who the demons bow before, hanging out with all these icky people, like the people that we would be like, you know, if we saw a politician hanging out with them, we're like, you are corrupt. And there's Jesus. Um, having, you know, hummus and bread or something like that. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, brave men that they are, they went straight to his disciples. (laughs) Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? They're outraged. You know, like we would be if there were photos of our local member you know, with the crooks and the, you know, going, wait a second, why are you with them? It's like, oh, just networking. Oh. But when Jesus heard it, he said, those who are well. Uh, this is one of my favorite parts in all the Bible, because this cuts to the heart of humanity and the message of Christianity. Those who are well have no need of a physician, doctor, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. Quoting Hosea 6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Matthew, awkwardly, probably as he writes this, because of the reality, He pitches himself as the ideal response. Jesus, the man with divine authority, tells him to follow him and he leaves everything behind and goes. That's the ideal response. If Jesus calls you and says, follow me, drop everything and go. This is contrasted with the religious Pharisees who are angry that he would call such a weak and vile and immoral person as Matthew. But Jesus' reply is so important. Whether this is your first time at church in a long time, 
or the 10,000th time you've ever come to church, we need to remember this reality of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Those who are well have no need of a physician. If you think you're a good person, you have no need of Jesus. If you think you're spiritually healthy and well and you're just here to get a bit more morals or truth or something like that, you don't need Jesus. Just steal the principles. You know, follow Jordan Peterson. You know, get some ideas from other places. You don't need Jesus. For Jesus didn't come to call the people who thought they were good, the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In order to follow Jesus, you need to see yourself. You need to humble yourself and genuinely believe that you are sick. You need a doctor. You need to genuinely believe that you are sick with sin and you need to genuinely trust that Jesus can heal you. The rottenness of sin is like a cancer. Enters in and spreads to every part of our being, every faculty of our mind, our goals and aspirations for life, our heart, soul, mind, our thoughts, our words, our deeds. Sin permeates us. And there are only two types of people in the world those who are sick with sin and know it, and those who are sick with sin and don't know it. Jesus didn't come to call the righteous because there are no righteous people. No one is righteous. No one is good. Yet whenever I try and spread the gospel in this city in Parramatta, I speak to people who believe they are good. I ask them, what do you believe? Oh, what's your religion? Do you have any practice? Well, I don't believe in God or anything, but I'm a good person. I believe in being good. I believe in being kind to people. Everyone thinks that they are somewhat good in their core. And Jesus is saying, there are no one, no one is that. All of us are sick. All of us are like tax collectors and sinners. And which one are you? Do you recognize today that you are sick with sin? You see, anyone can follow Jesus, but not everyone will. Anyone can follow Jesus, but not everyone will. Unless you see your need you can never be freed. So this story teaches us a lot about the nature of Christianity. But in response to this question, how should we respond? Well, discipleship, following Jesus involves humbling ourselves, admitting that we are sick with sin, and trusting Jesus, the good doctor, to cure us. Matthew tells yet another story, verse 14 to 17. Presumably, maybe the disciples of John the Baptist had seen the disciples having a pretty good time. They're fasting, they're partying, they're feasting. And then this is what happens, verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So they're presumably thinking like, why are we like suffering over here, fasting multiple times a week, depriving ourselves? Like John the Baptist has got us fasting. The Pharisees were telling us to fast. And you guys are partying. Like this, I don't like what we're doing. What, what's going on? And look, your disciples don't fast. Like you're not religious like us. We, something's wrong. 
And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Which is, of course, why we fast now, because Jesus isn't here with us. I'm not going to teach on that now. We'll do it another time. And then he goes on to say this. He explains it. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Now, to understand this image, you've got to kind of imagine like what they would do is they would get the, like the bladder of an animal and, and use that as a skin to hold substances in. And over time, that, that wine skin um, would grow like brittle and, and dry out and um, wouldn't be as strong as it was originally. And if you poured new wine that was still fermenting into an old wine skin, eventually it would bubble, 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 and then pff, it would burst, it would break, and you'd lose the skin, you'd lose the wine. And Jesus is saying, um, like in, in a modern analogy, you can't shake a bottle of co- Coke and use your mouth to stop it, right? <laughs> what he's saying is you can't tack Jesus on to your religious system. You can't just add Jesus into your prearranged system and think that it'll all work out together. Jesus is far too great. His new way of living is far too different. It creates and needs a whole new structure. Many religions of the world want to tack Jesus on. Hinduism, oh, we'll just adopt Jesus as another God. Islam, oh, he's just one of the prophets. Secular humanism, well, we can have the ethics of the king without the king. They want to tack Jesus on. People like him as a moral teacher, but if you truly take the true Jesus and pour him into your old system, it's going to burst out. Jesus calls for a whole new system. And therefore, he's saying to these disciples and to us today, you must humble yourself, get rid of the old, and trust me, I am the new. Would have been very difficult. Would have been very hard for these Jews to think the whole system that they were brought up with was coming into obsolescence. It's like when you buy a new iPhone and you think this is the world's greatest thing and then within like a year, none of the apps work because you need the newest model. That's what the, old, the, the Levitical system was like. And Jesus is saying, you have to humble yourself now. Give up on your previous way. I am the new way. So Matthew paints these, these two more pictures. How should we respond to Jesus? He's the authoritative son of God and simply... We are to humble ourselves, seeing our sin, seeing our proclivity to want to hold on to old religions and to our practices and our way of doing things. We have to humble ourselves and and disavow ourselves from those things and then turn and trust him with everything, with our sin, with our worship, with our practice, with all of our life. It's a whole new way of living. We must humble ourselves and trust him. Not ourself, not our performance, not our tradition, but him and him alone. Michael Green says, 
Nothing less than complete and immediate obedience to such a call and allegiance to such a person will suffice. So we've got, who, what sort of man is this? Divine, authoritative son of God. How should we respond? Humble ourselves and trust him. My third question is, what now? You know, that's them, that's for them, but what for us today? Especially for those who are already trusting in him. What does it mean for us today in light of who Jesus is, the authoritative son of God? Well, I, I thought of four ways from this passage uh, that we could humbly apply this um, text. Friends, in light of who Jesus is, humble yourself and trust him in the natural realm. In sickness, in storms, in strife, even if you have a little faith, turn to him. Do not turn to yourself. Do not turn to other forms of comfort, other forms of salvation. Turn first and cry out to the, the God of the storm. Turn to him and trust in him. Secondly, humble yourself and trust him in the supernatural realm. There is a genuine spiritual war raging, but Jesus is in charge. In the fear of life and the uncertainty of life, don't run to horoscopes, mediums, palm readers for comfort. Don't turn to other spiritual forces in the realm. You are dealing with dangerous beings. When the fear of future hits and you're unsure or the loss of loved ones pangs your heart, do not turn to spiritual forces for comfort. Turn to Jesus. Humble yourself and trust in him. Thirdly, Humble yourself and trust him in the mess. If you follow Jesus, he will mess up your life, okay? That's an encouraging way to end, but that's the reality. He turns our lives upside down. He reorients our spending, our finance, our love, our affection, our time, our serving, our relationships. Everything gets changed when you follow Jesus. Out with the old wineskin, in with the new. Don't be like the Gadarenes who are like, too much to handle, just go. It can be tempting to be like that when Jesus encroaches on every part of our life. You think, even here, Lord, even this I have to submit to you in. <sighs> but friends, humble yourself and trust him. He's the son of man, the authoritative one who has dominion over all things. And he does it all for your good. Humble yourself and trust him finally with your sins. Our greatest need and the most vulnerable thing in our life is our sins. We hate to admit it. We hate to, you know, define ourselves as sinful and weak and immoral and disgusting in the sight of God. No one wants to do that. But the only way to be truly free, the only way to experience eternal life is to trust your sins with Jesus. To stop trying to save yourself, to stop thinking you can make it on your own, that you can atone for your own sins. But instead, like the tax collector in Jesus' parable, to cry out to God, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Humble yourself and trust him with your sins. 
whether for the first time, you're not yet a Christian today, trust him with your sins today, or the 10,000th time as a Christian where you've sinned again. Don't cover it up. Don't be like, I'll just do better next time. Confess, acknowledge it, repent, and trust that he has paid the price for that very sin, and you walk free today. So friends, as we see these three stories, we see that Jesus is the divinely authoritative Son of Man, and we are called to humble ourselves and to trust Him in this journey, no matter what the Lord throws at us. We're going to end by responding in a song that's a prayer. It's a song called Christ the Sure and Steady Anchor. Let these lyrics be your prayer of application. Let these words flood your soul. Christ the sure and steady anchor in the fury of the storm. When the winds of doubt blow through me, when my sails have all been torn. In the suffering, in the sorrow, when my sinking hopes are few, I will hold fast to the anchor and it will never be removed. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray and ask that you would help us to see you for who you really are. See your son for who he really is. Divine, authoritative, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, not to be trifled with, not to be redefined, but to be accepted as he is. We humble ourselves as a church before him and confess that he is our Lord and King. And Lord, we ask that you would enable us to humble ourselves and trust him in the day to day. In the storm, in the sickness, in the suffering, in the trial, and in our sins. Help us to trust you and turn to you first and give up on ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.